Jailed activist Mumia Abu-Jamal faces emergency heart surgery. Judy Collins on music and activism. The president sanctions Russia. What's the secret with the NYPD? And the mayor pleads for a mega project opposed by a community. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 15th, 2021. Today, the United States imposed an aggressive array of sanctions on Russia. The sanctions prohibit United States banks from purchasing Russian debt. It's punishment for Russia's alleged interference in last year's U.S. election, cyber hacking, bullying Ukraine, and other alleged malign actions. The latest step is part of a wider array of sanctions. Among the sanctions, the blacklisting of 30 Russian entities and expelling 10 Russian diplomats from the United States. But this afternoon, Biden spoke focusing on the positive Coming off an earlier conversation with Russian President Vladimir Putin, Biden says there's room for a summit. I propose that we meet in person this summer in Europe for a summit to address a range of issues facing both of our countries. Our teams are discussing that possibility right now. And out of that summit, where it to occur, and I believe it will, the United States and Russia could launch a strategic stability dialogue to pursue cooperation in arms control and security. I express concern about Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's border and and in occupied Crimea. I affirm U.S. support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. And I strongly urge them to refrain from any military action. Now is the time to de-escalate. My bottom line is this. When there's an interest in the United States to work with Russia, we should and we will. Russia seeks to violate the interests of the United States, we will respond. And that's the president speaking just a few moments ago. Both Trump and Barack Obama expelled individual diplomats during their presidency. The latest round of sanctions might have resonance because of its financial impact. The order makes it more difficult for Russia to borrow money by borrowing U.S. banks from buying Russian bonds directly from the Russian central bank. Meanwhile, U.S. officials are still grappling with the after effects of the solar winds cyber intrusion. It affected the Treasury, Justice, Energy and Homeland Security departments. Officials are still assessing what information may have been stolen. The breach exposed weaknesses in the federal government's cyber defenses. And Mumia Abu-Jamal is facing an emergency open-heart surgery. He's currently serving a life sentence in a Pennsylvania prison. His family, friends, and supporters have been fighting for his freedom, saying Mumia is being held as a political prisoner because of his lifelong commitment to justice. Joanna Fernandez is a WBAI WBAI host, as well as writer and producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She spoke just a few moments ago. Last time his loved ones heard from him was Saturday, this past Saturday. And it wasn't until yesterday that we realized just from conversations with each other that something must be deeply wrong. And that's when the mobilization to free Mumia started working and calling trying to figure out by hook or crook his whereabouts. We learned after a lot of cajoling that he would be undergoing heart surgery, but his attorneys were not able to get much more information. We do not know his whereabouts, the hospital where he was taken to. We are demanding essentially that 
Mumia be allowed to call his loved ones on a regular basis, that he not be shackled to the bed as is the practice of prisons when prisoners are hospitalized, both in Pennsylvania and across the country, and his freedom. That's what's happening. We don't have a lot of information about the source of the heart crisis and emergency heart surgery. There seems to be blockage, serious blockage in his artery, but his chosen medical consultant, his doctor, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, hasn't been allowed to talk to the doctors who are caring for him at the hospital. What do his friends, family, supporters, what are they trying going to try and do next? We're calling for Mumia's immediate and unconditional release. The prison system has not been able to address his health needs. He was in the hospital only two weeks ago and he got a battery of tests. The crisis he's in should have, we're told, been addressed and it wasn't. The prison system has literally made Mumia ill. The food, the stress, the trauma, we know that imprisonment ages people prematurely we're asking for his immediate release we're asking that he not be shackled to his bed and i'm repeating this because shackling someone who's facing heart surgery is going to increase the possibility of illness and failure in surgery and we want easy and fluid and constant contact with Mumia as his supporters and loved ones, especially his wife. And we're asking people to call the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, its head, whose name is John Wetzel. People can go to letmumiaout.com to get information. And that is Joanna Fernandez speaking just moments ago. She is a WBA host, as well as writer and producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. More information, including who to write and call for justice for Mumia, is available at bringmumiahome.com. And former Minneapolis policeman, police officer Derek Chauvin, waived his right to testify to the jury about his part in the deadly arrest last May of George Floyd. As both sides rested their cases at his murder trial, the most high-profile police case, police killing case in decades, he was questioned by his defense attorney, Eric Nelson, and Judge Peter Cahill. Have you made a decision uh, today whether you intend to testify or whether you intend to invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh, I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. All right. Does anyone... Uh promise anything or threatened you in any way to keep you from testifying? No promises or threats, Your Honor. Do you feel that your decision not to testify is a voluntary one on your behalf? Yes, it is. Uh, if you would like, I can read this instruction to the jury. The defendant has no obligation to, pr to prove innocence. The defendant has the right not to testify. This right is guaranteed by the federal and state constitutions. You should not draw any inference from the fact that the defendant has not testified in this case. Do you understand that instruction? Yes, Your Honor. Would you like that read to the jury? Yes, Your Honor. 
And that was earlier today. Cahill said jurors would hear closing arguments on Monday before receiving the case for deliberations. They'll be sequestered at a hotel in a city whose downtown is filled with National Guard troops and boarded up windows preparing for potential unrest. In related news, tensions escalated across Minneapolis after a police officer in nearby Brooklyn Center shot and killed Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man, during a traffic stop on Sunday. Hundreds of protesters massed outside Brooklyn Center police headquarters for a fourth night on Wednesday after the officer Kim Potter resigned and was charged with second degree manslaughter. Meanwhile, former Brooklyn Center police officer Potter wearing a plaid shirt made her first court appearance as the family of Dante Wright called for full accountability for his death outside the courthouse. Attorney Ben Crump said while he didn't want to prejudice former officer Potter, the evidence of an unwarranted killing was clear. I don't want my words to be misconstrued. I don't know what's in her heart, but what I do know, she used excessive force because he didn't even need to be tased. When you look at those videos at Attorney Crump, go look at those videos of those white young men challenging, attacking, assaulting, and battering the police. And they did not shoot them. They didn't use tasers on them. And so why is it that they do this to black people, and when they over-police us, when they use the most force, it has deadly consequences for us and our children. Hennepin County Judge Paul Scoggins set the next court date for May 17th and ordered Potter, who is out on a $100,000 bond, not to use firearms or explosives for the duration of her case. In charging Potter with second-degree manslaughter, prosecutors will try to show she was culpably negligent and took an unreasonable risk in shooting Dante Wright. If convicted, Potter, who is white, faces a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison and a $20,000 fine. And as the nation girds itself for potential unrest that could sweep the country, a veteran peace activist, folk musician Judy Collins, is returning to her roots in the contentious days of the civil rights movement in the year 1964. The concert back then was Collins' breakout performance. Tomorrow night, Collins is returning to that famous day at Town Hall that started her career of civil rights and peace activism with a beautiful voice. going to be broadcast on the 16th of April, by popular demand, what they're calling a, a virtual concert. So I did a lot of material on this concert that you're going to see on the 16th of April. It's going to be a repeat of much of the material that I did in 1964. 1964 is a bigger year than 1968 when you talk about 60s history and 60s culture. That was really the year, the breakout year for the civil rights movement, wasn't it? Absolutely. And it was a year that I sang for the first time in public that I sang Dylan's great song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, about a murder in Baltimore that Dylan read about and wrote this magnificent song. I haven't sung it for years. And so Town Hall wanted me for a long time to go back to that year and find out what we could do with it. And this is the result. The year was an amazing year. I was about to go to Mississippi in that summer to volunteer to help get black voters in Mississippi. I was able to travel with Fannie Lou Hamer for a couple of weeks down there and experience her power and her passion. And I said to her one time, going from town to town, from 
Jacksonville to Roeville. I said, aren't you afraid? She said, why should I be afraid? They've already tried to kill me. So it was, as you said, the year when a lot was happening. By the way, I also had a radio show on WBAI in 1964. I had uh, Richard and Mimi Farina on the radio show. I interviewed Tom Paxton on the radio show. Somewhere in the archives, digging deeply into the archives, somebody will come across them, I'm sure. A very critical year for what was going to roll out in the next four years towards 1968. Vietnam was the worst of the stories, supposedly. Have you been in the studio? Are you recording anything right now? At the moment, I'm about to go into the studio to record an album called Resistance and Beauty, which uh, hopefully will come out before the summer ends. It's an album of all my own songs, including a replay of Dreamers, which is a song I wrote about immigration and put out a couple of years ago. So every year, I'm always up to something. The most recent album is an album called Winter Stories, which went on number one on the bluegrass section of Billboard, which is very funny. Contemporary versions of a number of songs that I had done before. I'm usually doing 120 shows a year. So I'm on the road a lot, and now I'm not, but I'm going back. I'll be in my first concert is June 16th in New Jersey. But the concert that you'll see on April 16th is such a great concert. That's a great hall to work in, and I had a great band. Let me jump ahead and talk about your activism. I try to do what I can, and I think it's hard right now to move around and partake and try to support the best causes. You know, this morning, a friend of mine came into my um, apartment and said, you know, I was down at, I was coming on the train and I was at, uh, I was at the train station and out on the sidewalk there was a woman lying on the floor on the ground. And a couple of us stood around and decided she was alive. She was dressed in scrubs. She was extremely overweight, but we thought she might be dead. And then we looked closely and realized she wasn't dead. She was on the sidewalk, asleep, passed out, whatever you want to call it. So I went in to get a cop, she said. And the cop came out and looked around and said, oh, that's just Christy. She's there all the time. Well, you know, what I now I think about the homelessness in this city that we live in. We have a problem. I have to think about what can I do about that? What is there an action that I can take? And I'll try to do whatever I think I can. And that is Judy Collins. Collins spoke about the resistance from government authorities she faced, especially during the 1960s, when she felt Big Brother was watching her. The feeling is, is that the files are the biggest on the older generation. I was wondering if that was an yeah. influence on you. Oh, yes, absolutely. We were tracked. We were watched. We were, you know, approached. And I did get, because of the Freedom of Information Act, I did get my file. Of course, most of them are blacked out, as you probably know. They were, there were reams of, of files, but they, you can't really get a sense of what they were looking for, looking, because they didn't know what they were looking for either. And so there was a great uh, thrust of, of uh, interest in us. And, you know, we know that these people were out of their minds about, what they were looking for and what they were looking at and 
people that they were hounding. Judy Collins. The encore event, Judy Collins, a return to her legendary 1964 concert, is being presented by Town Hall tomorrow at 8 p.m. You can get more information at thetownhall.org. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Withheld records, canceled interviews, slow walk requests. The inspector general keeps hitting walls while trying to probe problems in the NYPD. There's a reason people call one police plaza the Puzzle Palace. Topher Sanders is an award-winning reporter with ProPublica. His article today is Inspecting the NYPD Puzzle Palace. The community's calling for a lot of reform. The community would like to see these types of changes. You know, there's a body within New York City government that has the charge of kind of examining many of the concerns that New Yorkers are speaking to right now. It's the inspector general's office. And I didn't know much about the inspector general's office to that point. Many New Yorkers don't even know the inspector general's office even exists for NYPD. I started looking into it and it was very clear to me very quickly that the people who worked for that office and the people who formerly worked for that office expressed a lot of frustration about their efforts to obtain records, obtain data, talk to witnesses so that they could do their probes, do their inquiries and be able to generate reports with recommendations that were ostensibly intended to help the NYPD improve its operations, both for its officers and for the citizens of New York. Almost to a person, they said that those efforts confronted frequent and sometimes pretty dug in resistance. In particular, you were talking about the uh, special victims. You get the impression that sex crimes are the most important crimes that the department deals with, and they have their best people, and they respond like a Hollywood cast. But you're saying it's a little different than that. It's the inspector general's office is saying it's different than that. They spent a considerable amount of time looking into the special victims division of NYPD and put out a report several years back that highlighted a number of challenges and problems within that division. The ways they were able to do that with such clarity was because the commander of the unit was willing to talk with them in full breath and was willing to be a cooperative person in their investigation. They asked for records. He handed those records over to NYPD's legal bureau. And when he went over there for an interview, a portion of those records were, were not present. They were like, well, hey, this is all we got from legal bureau. And he's like, well, I gave them more. And that was clear to him. I mean, it was clear to people in and around the IG shop that they weren't being given all the records, even though there were no other real justifications for withholding those records. What did you find they were concealing? Basically, we're told is that it was embarrassing material. It wasn't anything that was sensitive. There can be healthy sensitivity around uh, victims and their personal identifying information. Apparently, it was just information that was embarrassing to NYPD, uh, information that showed that that commander had been working for weeks and months to get more help, get more resources, get better training for his people. Seemingly, those requests were falling on deaf ears. A different image than the television image. I mean, yeah, sure. 
altogether different. Why should people read this article? Because this office created at a time where New Yorkers and members of city council were uh, really frustrated by uh, policing in uh, New York City. This is a, kind of the height of stop and frisk. And the office was created to generate the kind of reports that distilled the patterns and practices that really need tuning, revamping, changing within NYPD. That's going to be beneficial for not only the citizens of New York, but but for members of NYPD. Their efforts were stymied. The mayor does want to make the same mistake as David Dinkins did back in the 90, early 90s. They call this plan the mayor's plan that some observers and advocates of the IG's office and its mission are a little concerned about, a plan that would move the inspector general under CCRB, he calls that plan the Dinkins plan. And that is uh, Topher Sanders, who's an award-winning reporter with ProPublica. His article is Inspecting the NYPD Puzzle Palace. And in more New York City news, the city is taking a look at the NYPD's no-knock warrants policy. These are used by police to ambush suspects without having to wait outside their home. The New York Daily News has published a series of reports about allegedly botched raids in the city, and several of those families are suing. They say police broke down the door at the wrong apartment or at a place where the suspect no longer lived. Mayor Bill de Blasio says the city is going to review the tactic. Police Commissioner Dermot Shea this morning called the lawsuits frivolous and wrongful. He said the department is careful when conducting these raids, and he indulged in some blame the victim, claiming people also have responsibility, whether it's a son, a daughter, or a boyfriend of a daughter, or any of those circumstances that are coming into your house. And the community is complaining to the NYPD about drugs and guns and gang members at locations. He said, certainly we have a moral obligation to address those complaints, and that's exactly what we did. And Mayor Bill de Blasio brought out the big guns today to try and push through the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project, a flood control plan for the Lower East Side that's being opposed by many residents, even as it's supported by many of the area's elected officials. Mayor de Blasio. I realize the sheer magnitude of some of these things. The Rockaways Boardwalk, 5.5 miles, uh, that was created as a resiliency um, barrier on top of the work that we've been doing with the Army Corps engineers in the Rockaways. That's just one piece. There's obviously crucial elements in Staten Island. There's pieces that we put together that um, are temporary measures. Uh, as you saw in Lower Manhattan, you've seen in Red Hook. There's a variety of uh, elements, and they're constantly moving because this is, we're talking not billions, but ultimately tens of billions of dollars will be spent um, to achieve resiliency. I do think it's important to recognize the level of threat and also where the most people are. And that's why the east side resiliency effort is so crucial, 110,000 people affected by that. And the project was proposed after Hurricane Sandy in 2012 flooded the area. De Blasio then introduced Jamie Torres Springer, who is commissioner of the Department of Design and Construction, known as DDC, to explain the project, where many questions still remain. The project, we're very proud, has been designed to a very aggressive standard of protection, well beyond what the federal government prescribes as the standard of protection. Uh, I'll just say it technically. Um, we have designed it to address the 100-year flood in the year 2100. 
in the worst case scenario for that flood, what's called the 90th percentile projection. So it is a very aggressive standard, raising the elevation of the park and the neighborhood behind it in order to protect from that scenario, which is, of course, far in the future. And the reason that we select a scenario like that through our modeling is, of course, as you mentioned, Mayor, we have to balance the level that we get to with the need for access. And so that was the compromise, the balancing that we achieved. But I also want to note that we have built in two feet of additional adaptability so we can raise the elevation an additional two feet based on the structural work that we're doing. So we're very confident about protecting the community far into the future with this project. And that's Jamie Torres Springer, the commissioner of DDC. Many residents believe a similar scenario to the Van Cortland Park water filtration project will occur on the Lower East Side, devastating public use of the park as it did in the Bronx. But council member Carlina Rivera, another supporter of the $1.45 billion project, spoke out for the plan as well. East River Park was an escape for me. It's where I practiced my Daryl Strawberry impersonation during Little League, winning countless softball games, and where I learned to ride my bike. And I was here when Hurricane Sandy made landfall, trapping thousands of public housing residents in their homes and inundating our waterfront. I know many friends and family members who to this day are forced to relive that trauma, even during a common heavy rainfall. But we stepped up as a community to respond and rebuild after Sandy. And now it's time to ensure that another storm never brings eight feet of water into our east side homes and businesses again. Climate change projects like ESCR are going to be our generation's lasting mark on our nation's infrastructure. There are generations moonshot, our subway system, and they're not going to be easy. But I'm happy that our neighborhoods stepped up and took the lead on the first major resiliency project in New York City. Carlina Rivera is a councilwoman from the from the area, uh, but opponents of the project say the city has a hidden agenda, referring to the so-called value engineering report, a document used by the city to overturn an earlier community plan for East River Park, a document that was filled with redactions blacked out and prevented that prevented people from getting information, information that some came out later would have helped them in a lawsuit to stop the project. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 15th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our, engi- our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.